All right, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at a section in Hebrews chapter 10, um, which is where we're going to return to today if you want to get your Bibles open there. The, the section we've kind of covered um, begins uh, around verse, um, verse 19, which is uh, the beginning of a section where the writer of Hebrews tells us um, how we should react to all the doctrine that he's been teaching us in the previous several chapters. Um, there, there's, there's so much that we've seen in the book of Hebrews about the superiority of the new covenant when we compare it to the old, right? Jesus is, is the focal point of the new covenant. He's our perfect high priest after the order of Melchizedek, the one who made himself our perfect sacrifice so we could be perfected in him for all time. Now, in light of that most glorious truth, how should we live? What are the most necessary things for Christians to do? The the writer answers that question in three parts in verses 22 through 25. He says, let us draw near to God in faith in Christ Jesus. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope in Christ Jesus. Let us consider how to love one another as Christ Jesus has loved us. Faith, hope, and love we see in those verses are the, are the, are the three pillars of the Christian life. We, we have to have them. We have to work to maintain them. We have to grow in them as Christians. These are the essentials of the Christian life. Now today, the writer will once again warn us what could happen if we fail to build our lives upon these three pillars of faith, hope, and love. We studied a passage like this a few months ago in Hebrews chapter 6 about apostasy. And this is not a repeat of that, but it is like that in many ways, the, 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 the verses that we're going to look at today. The description here, however, is probably more terrifying. You see it in the, in the last verse we'll discuss today in verse 31. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. By, by most accounts of most of the commentators of the New Testament, point to this section that we're going to cover today as rivaling the book of Revelation and how terrifyingly specific it is that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is, perhaps aside from the book of Revelation, certain aspects of it, um, the most terrifying warning in the New Testament. And the New Testament... The, 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 the terrifying warnings in the Old Testament don't even really hold a candle to the terrifying statements of these things in the New Testament. And we'll see that today as we compare, contrast those two, the old and the new and the, and the judgment that comes out of them. The, the, the passage itself starts in, cha- in, in chapter 10, verse 26. I'm going to look at this today starting in 26 and go through verse 31. So uh, if you have your Bible, please open it there and read along with me starting in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and who has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand your word. Not just to know what it says, but to take to heart the really the terror of the words that are before us, that any who would fall away from, from, from the faith are, are doing these things to you the, way that you, the way that you see apostasy, the turning away after receiving the knowledge that we have in the gospel. This is uh, the most frightening thing, not just because the words are um, grand and um, bring, bring to mind so many different different thoughts of horror, but because of the reality that if we don't guard our lives and our hearts and our minds, this could be any one of us who's described in these passages today. Lord, I, help, I pray you help us to, to rightly see ourselves in light of your word, 
to understand exactly what you've warned us about here. Lord, help us. Help us to, to be fortified in the faith as we look at these things today, to, to lean more wholly and more fully on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our perfect everything. We just thank you for this today. Pray for, I pray for your help in, in teaching it, and, and, and I pray for everybody listening, that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see what you have for us in the Scripture today. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 26 begins, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And the, the first question that's raised by that verse is, who's he talking about here? Who, who is the subject of this, of this passage? Now, you'll see in verse 26, it says, For if we go on sinning, we is the subject. We is who it's written to. We, we is who he's talking about. It includes both the writer of Hebrews and his audience. It's the same subject he used in verse 19, just a, a few verses earlier in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, who has the privilege of, of, of being able to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus? Do the lost have that privilege? Does an unbeliever have that privilege? Is only a Christian who has that privilege to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And that is exactly who the book of Hebrews is written to, brothers. The writer said so right there in verse 19, right? And, and we, we, brothers, since we have confidence, let us do these things. Us, we, the writer includes himself in there. He continues to do so into verse 26. Is it possible for us that, that, that we could find ourselves in this verse, therefore? Because what does he say? Not only that, that we've received the knowledge of the truth, but after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there could be something that we do that could uh, make it to where there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. No longer having our sins paid for. Is that possible for you, for me, for us, for we, brothers, sisters? You might remember how we talked about this when we studied the similar passage in Hebrews 6. You'll want to probably keep your finger here a couple pages earlier in Hebrews 6 because we're going to go back and forth a little bit with this um, to, to see this passage today in light of what we've already talked about in many ways. But, but here in, in Hebrews 6, we noted that this description of one who had fallen away is one which made those who will fall away indiscernible from the authentic believers. You can't tell the difference. That's the point. See, 6.4, how does he write? He, he, he talks about this, that it's impossible for those who have fallen away. Well, who are these ones who are falling away? These people were once enlightened, he says in verse 4. Tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit. They were not just casual church attenders. These people tasted Something of the Word of God affecting their lives. They experienced something of the age to come when all things will be restored in the kingdom of Christ. They've known these things not just intellectually but by experience. In all of these things, they were, they were in the church among the saints. Some were even probably teachers. If we would have looked at them, they would have looked no different than anybody else. Except for probably some of them were better Christians than we are. But they were only temporary believers. For some reason or another, they fell away after knowing all there was to know and having experienced at least some of the blessings of the Lord. Now, if we didn't have explicit teaching elsewhere in the Scripture, to the contrary, I would have to understand that there are real believers who would turn away and reject the Lord Jesus Christ, that these would have to be authentic believers, except for a few places in the Bible that teach us explicitly that that cannot be the case. They, they, I would otherwise understand them to be believers who fell away, because it says right there in, in verse 6 right, that, that they have crucified again the Son of God to their own harm. Is that possible for a believer to have that kind of contempt for the Lord who saved them? Well, John spoke very clearly about this type of situation in his first epistle. 
This, this is the only proof I'll use today, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, John writes about those who, who, who abandoned the faith, that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. In other words, they never were of us. They looked like it. They were part of us. They, nobody would have thought anything different. But there are those among us who are Christians by profession. They, they, they even have credible professions, right? They, they, they are believable. They, they talk about how the Lord showed them things, and, and they, they, they re- reacted to that in their lives. They, they changed. They lived differently. They know the truth, accept the truth. For a while, they walk in the light of, a tr- of the truth, at least, like I said, for a time. But if they ultimately fall away, no matter how much we all thought they were the real deal, no matter how much they themselves were convinced at that moment, if they fall away, it demonstrates that they were never actually authentic Christians, never truly of Christ. Because if they were authentic, what would have happened, according to John? They would have continued with us. That's not an exclusive statement about Cornerstone Chapel, us. That's us Christians, those who continue in the faith, right? If they were authentic, they would have continued. We have to recognize, therefore, the tremendous danger for each and every one of us, therefore, in these things. The, the only way to know that you are an authentic believer is that you don't fall away. This is why the writer of Hebrews has warned us repeatedly that we need to be very concerned about this. Think back to the earliest chapters of the, of the book when we were in chapter 2, verse 1. He writes this way, Therefore we must pay close, much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 2, 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Remember we talked about this in a progression format before. That it starts with simple drifting, almost imperceptible. It, it, it's so, so slow and gentle that you almost can't see it, but then it, it leads to some neglect of certain things. And then in Hebrews 3.6, it, it, we read it this way, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. What's it lead to? Drifting leads to neglect, leads to hardness of heart, a hardening against these things. And then in Hebrews 3.12, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Do you hear that? Brothers have the potential to have an evil, unbelieving heart. Be, be aware of that. Take care. Why? Because it will lead you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews 3.12. What should we do? Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's the progression. Drifting, neglect, hard-heartedness leads to falling away. Hebrews 4.11, he says, Therefore let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Falling into the disobedience of disbelief is the warning. And, the, and lastly, for this section here, Hebrews 4.14, he says, Since we have then a great high priest who passed through the heavens, the Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. He's brought those right back here into chapter 10, hasn't he? Let us draw near to God, not with a hard heart, but, but with a heart inclined to want to hear from him. Let us hold fast to our confession. It's a re- repetition of what he said back there in Hebrews 4. Let us not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Drifting and neglecting slowly that leads to what? It leads to giving up the hope. It leads to abandoning the faith. Falling away. That's the progression he's been warning us about. And those warnings are powerfully explicit. That it's possible for each and every one of us to fall away. What does that look like? In many ways, the classic definition is right here in Hebrews 10.26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is not the same thing as falling into sin, even falling into willful and repeated sin. The context of verse 26 puts the sinning in the context of the previous verses. 
It's about, it's about having received the truth and falling away from the truth, sinning deliberately by turning our back on the truth. It's, it's for those who know the truth but fail to draw near to God in faith. What do they do instead? Instead, they turn to believing in something else. It's, it's for those who abandon the confession of their hope in Christ, deciding that he who promised is not faithful and the gospel's a lie. It, this is the warning for those who not only neglect meetings, but who refuse to love God and his people. They have made themselves adversaries of God, as verse 27 calls them. The, the deliberate sinning that the writer has in mind in verse 26 is the willful rejection of the truth that they had once believed. That's apostasy. The utter and final falling away from Jesus by those who once professed faith in him. It's the failure to continue in the faith. Jesus addressed this in John chapter 8, verse 31. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, if, you, if they had believed in him, get that? That's the description in John 8, 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus said that knowing you are truly a disciple is confirmed by one thing, and one thing only. It's not confirmed by knowing the truth. They knew the truth. It's not confirmed by believing the truth. They believed the truth. The confirmation is in continuing to believe the truth, abiding. That's what he says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. To abide in his word, yes, you have to know it, you have to understand it, you have to believe it, you have to trust in it, but you have to continue in it. You have to abide. We have to know the truth and trust the truth, but in order to truly be a Christian disciple, we must abide in the word of Christ Jesus. We have to continue until the end without what? Without falling away without walking away, without apostatizing. Yes, we will fall into sin, some even into desperately despicable and besetting sin. And, uh, and, and that is a tremendously dangerous thing to do, to fall into sin, to commit sin, repetitive sin, right? Because it can lead to the apostasy we're talking about today. But strictly speaking, our passage today is not talking about believers who are struggling with specific individual sins that plague their spiritual life, the ones that Jesus will, will, will discipline them for in his displeasure. That's not what we're talking about. The authentic disciple will continually turn to Christ in confession and repentance, even if the sin is repetitive, over and over again. Even if they wallow around in it unrepentant for months or years, perhaps. Ultimately, the authentic believer will come back. Ultimately, the thing that an authentic disciple will never do is reject the person of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of his gospel. We'll see this later in our passage. Don't, don't allow me saying this and delineating these two things to be a comfort to you in your sins. We should never be comfortable in our pet sin, whatever that thing is. Failure to repent is one of the causes of apostasy. It's involved in stuff like hardening your heart and ultimately falling away. But it's not the same as apostasy. Is that clear? How can I be so confident as to say that? Well, look at the verses again. 26 and 27. Hebrews 10, 26 and 27. He says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Think with me for a, a second. What, what, what sin is there that so offends God that there no longer remains a sacrifice for that sin? It can't be forgiven. We might call that something like an unforgivable sin, an unpardonable sin. What's the unpardonable sin? What is that sin? In Matthew 12, 31, Jesus taught this. Uh, uh, he said, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but except for one, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Every sin is forgivable. 
all of them. Every sin can be covered by that once-for-all-time sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Every sin, except one. Blasphemy against the Spirit. Remember, remember what was going on? What's the context of this? There's something going on that Jesus is responding to by telling them about that unforgivable sin. It was this. It was this. Jesus was out casting out demons, and what did they come and say he was doing? By what power did they say he was casting out demons? By the power of Beelzebub, the devil, Satan, right? They, they said, they said that, that we see that some supernatural thing is going on here. That there's something that's not explainable by natural proceeds. There's a supernatural manifestation of something here. We know that it's the supernatural manifestation of the work of the Holy Spirit, casting demons out. But they didn't say it's the Spirit. Who did they say it's by? By the power of Satan. In the language here of Hebrews 10.26, they received the knowledge of the truth with their eyes. They saw what was going on. But instead of recognizing and confessing that Jesus was empowered by God, they rejected that truth and made up their own lies about him because they want to get rid of him. He's clearly doing this by the power of the devil. Let me warn you about something. All sins will be forgiven except for this one. You can say whatever you want about the Son of Man. But don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Don't see the truth, know the truth, and then make up some lie about it. This is, this is what they were doing. And that is what the apostate does. The exact same thing. Once they turn their back on the truth, no longer trusting in Jesus, after they believed that he paid for their sins by his sacrifice on the cross for them, once they turn their back on him after that, there is no other way for their sins to be paid for, is there? I believe that Jesus died on the cross and paid for my sins. I mean, no, I don't. There is no more sacrifice for sin in my case. Why? Because I turned my back on the only sacrifice that could ever deal with my sin. I, I've denied that. I've, I've given that up. We've been talking about sacrifice for a while in the book of Hebrews, haven't we? Have we come across any other kind of sacrifice that pays for sins? The blood of bulls and goats, rituals, ceremonies, anything else? Does anything actually deal with sin? Only the blood of Christ. So once the apostate rejects the sacrifice of, of, of Jesus as a fable or a lie, there's no longer any sacrifice possible for their sins. They've rejected the one sacrifice that was effective. All that remains for them, according to verse 27, is the fearful expectation of judgment. All that remains is the fearful expectation of judgment. They will one day stand before God on that great day of judgment in their own sins with no mediator, no advocate, no high priest. They've rejected the high priest. So he will not be there to plead on their behalf. Or perhaps better stated, in verse 29, Jesus will be there pleading as a witness against them because he's the one they trampled underfoot when they deliberately abandoned their faith by rejecting the truth they once know. He will be their judge and his wrath for their willful rejection will consume them like the fury of fire. I mentioned this earlier. See the name they're given at the end of verse 27? Verse 10, 27? They're called the adversaries. These apostates are also known as adversaries, they're enemies, but enemies of a particular kind, the, the kind who turned on the Lord like Judas did. In John 6, verse 70, Jesus answered the crowd and said, or answered the, the twelve, he said, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Consider Jesus, Judas a minute, three and a half years. Three and a half years he lived with Jesus, followed Jesus, listened to Jesus. He even taught what Jesus was teaching, cast out his own demons, healed his own sick, just like all the rest of the twelve, right? He was one of the twelve closest disciples. No one among the twelve or any of the others could have foreseen what the Lord already knew about him, as he stated here in John chapter 6. 
That despite every appearance of faith, every appearance of trust, every appearance of, of, of fidelity to the Lord, Judas turned his back on Jesus, rejected him, and sold him off for a small bag of coins. Every disciple who knows the truth and turns his back or her back on Jesus is of the same kind. A devil, an adversary, who stabs Jesus in the back after kissing him on the cheek. But the apostate aren't only like Judas, are they? Who else is known in the scriptures as the adversary? Perhaps somebody who's known as an adversary who prowls around like a roaring lion, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. That's the description of our adversary, the devil. In fact, the name, Hebrew name Satan means adversary or accuser. Satan is the adversary. He is the one who opposes God and his people as Judas turned in opposition to Christ also. Right? And as Hebrews 10, 26 and 27 tells us, everyone who sins deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth will be consumed by the fury of the fire that is reserved for God's adversaries, like Judas, like Satan. That's a shocking statement about how much the Lord hates apostasy. The next couple of verses here, the writer again employs one of his favorite methods of teaching. How often have we seen him contrast the Old and the New Covenants in the book of Hebrews? He does it again here starting in verse 28. Here's one of his favorite methods of, of teaching us. And he says in Hebrews 10.28, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by such a one, the one who, 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 who falls away? Consider with the writer of Hebrews a moment. Consider the law, that old covenant law, put into effect under the mediation of Moses. We could look it up and point to any number of laws which required the death penalty if violated in the nation of Israel. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person could receive the sentence of death for homicide, kidnapping, various types of sexual immorality, cursing or striking their parent, violating the Sabbath, a few other crimes. Now, however, the writer here has a certain type of offense in mind. Not just a sinful act, but he says a setting aside of the law of Moses. That has to do with the blatant, outright rebellion and rejection of the law of Moses altogether. It's against the law. Not breaking one of the commandments of the law, but setting themselves against the law of God. The law of Moses. It's, it's, retur it's referring to, to turning aside from that law in rejection of God. Even as often happened in the nation of Israel, turning aside from God, capital G, to worshiping many gods, lowercase g. Right? That's how it happened in Israel so often. This is about apostasy. Most of the generations in the Old Testament rejected the law of Moses altogether and chose to worship other gods. It's for generations such as that that, that God condemned Israel. Here, here's a blanket statement, Isaiah 1.4. God says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly, they have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. And they are utterly estranged. That's the big deal. That's the big deal that brought punishment upon the nation to such a degree that they were eventually so estranged that they're still not reconciled to God. But that's just the God of the Old Testament, right? I mean, that's the common thought in our day, isn't it? The God of the Old Testament is the God of wrath and vengeance, but, but, but the God of the New Testament, he's the God of love. He's the God of acceptance, tolerance, right? Jesus, the meek and lowly, gentle in spirit. Never punishing sin, but just loving everybody, all the prostitutes and the tax collectors and everybody, right? That's the God of the New Testament. And that's confirmed by this verse, isn't it? 
Right? Read it again with me, verse 28. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Verse 29 continues and says, But Jesus is merciful and won't ever punish anybody ever. Is that what it says? Of course not. The writer makes a startling contrast statement in verse 29 that fits with all the rest of everything we've discussed throughout the book of Hebrews. Remember we said this is a broad, a broad theme in the entire book. It's a book of contrasts. It's contrasting the old and the new. It's not, it's not drawing similarities. It's showing you the differences. And here's another place where it happens. Jesus, remember, is a better mediator of a better covenant, which has a better law than Moses, and the covenant he mediated with its inferior law that none could ever keep. So we have a far superior covenant and a far superior mediator in the new covenant when contrasted with the old. And with that in mind, would you therefore expect that turning your back on such a superior covenant would make you liable to lesser wrath or to greater wrath? Lesser punishment or greater punishment? Which would, which would make most sense? Turning your back on Moses was one thing, but turning your back on Jesus... That's something different. Isn't that the point the writer's making? And, and, and how much more punishment is deserved? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who falls away from Christ Jesus in the new covenant? It's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer, isn't it? The, the God of the New Testament actually has greater wrath than the God of the Old Testament. Because in the New Testament, he has given us much greater truth, much greater light. Those who turn away from Jesus deserve a much greater punishment than those who set aside the law of Moses. Now this becomes super clear when we consider the rest of this verse 29. Look at verse 29. He says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? That's the whole question. How much worse punishment for a guy like that? Now, now compare this description of the apostate with the one I brought up earlier in Hebrews 6. I said we'd go back there, right? How, how, how is the apostate described in, verse, in, in Hebrews 6, uh, verse 4? It says they were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They shared in the Holy Spirit. They tasted the goodness of the word. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. And then verse 6, it says they fall away so that they're no longer able to be restored to repentance because they will no longer turn to the Lord. That description of the apostate in chapter 6 is from our perspective, isn't it? That's my perspective. I, I can see them. They, 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 were, they were enlightened. They were, they were tasting of the, the, of the goodness of God. They, they even seemed to share in the Holy Spirit when we were together in the Spirit. They were in the Spirit with us. All of it looked the same, right? They, they've experienced all of this. They've tasted of all of it. That's my perspective. Case by case, the reality is, is I can't know if a person is an unbelieving apostate who's fallen away, never to return. Or if that same person is a backslidden believer who's fallen into sin and may still repent. I don't know. I made that point when we were in chapter 6. That's the danger. I don't know. Neither do you. You can't know. We cannot have enough information to know the answer to that question. We, we don't know everything required to make that determination. This in chapter 6 is a general description of how we see the apostate. Someone who claims to be a Christian, looks like a Christian, walks like a Christian, talks like a Christian, and then they eventually reject the faith they once professed. But here in chapter 10, we have a different perspective. This is not my perspective. Do you know whose perspective this is? This is God's perspective. We see in chapter 6 the outward manifestations, but here we are told the realities that God sees. In verse 29 here in chapter 10. We are told these in three different phrases. And each of these is a hideous description that, that demonstrates why the apostate under the new covenant deserves a much worse punishment than the law of Moses would have dictated. The law of Moses dictated physical death, but, but, but this, this much worse punishment is the eternal torment in the lake of fire. Much worse 
punishment. Why? Because of how God sees it. Look at the first, the first phrase. What have they done, these, these apostates? They've trampled underfoot the Son of God. Trampling. Trampling is an act of utter disrespect. It's a demonstration of contempt. It's not just walking away from the faith, but it's stomping on it with a vile hatred of it, as if it were the despicable thing that the world's better off without. It's utter disrespect. Apostasy under the new covenant is not just a dismissal of the facts. It's the utter rejection, not only of a truth, but of a person. See it? What's trampled underfoot? Not the law. Not tablets of stone. Not not the truth, but a person. The Son of God. That's who. Jesus. It's the rejection of Jesus, who is, as it says, none other than the Son of God. He is the only beloved of the Father who sent him into the world to save us from our sin. Why? Because of his great love that he has. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent this one into the world that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. He, he's that one of God, the, the, the one and only. We see a glimpse of this with a parable Jesus told in Matthew 21. Jesus began his parable of the tenants in Matthew 21, 33. It's a bit longer. You can turn there if you want because I'm doing the same. Matthew 21, 33, Jesus begins this parable here. And he says that, Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went away into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And as the tenants took his servants and beat, and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent out other servants more than the first. They did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir come. Let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, They will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. It took him a minute to realize that he was talking about them. Who's the owner of the vineyard? God. God is the owner. And who's the son? Thinly veiled, isn't it? It's his son. The son of God that he sent. He sent his son into the world. Jesus is the son whom they killed. And how does God view those who killed him? As wretches who deserve a miserable death. A torturous eternity. So how must God view those who trample underfoot that same son, crucifying him? Once again, as Hebrews 6, 6 describes them, God, God views them as wretched adversaries who deserve the most miserable death because they trampled on Jesus. That's not the only way God looks at them. Miserable wretches who trampled on Jesus. The apostates not only trample on the person of Christ, they also profane his work. They profaned the work of Christ on the cross. They profaned, it says, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. The word profaned means to declare something unrighteous, to declare it unholy. It's to make the thing into a profanity, a curse word, defiling it so that its beauty is destroyed. Consider what we've seen about the sacrifice of Jesus and his blood in just, in just the last chapter or so in Hebrews. In Hebrews 9.12 We learn that it's by the means of his own blood that he has secured our eternal redemption. The blood of the covenant. He secured our eternal redemption. Verse 14, the blood of Christ purifies our consciences from the dead works to serve the living God. Verse 25 and 26 of chapter 9, he entered by his own blood to put away sin by his sacrifice. According to Hebrews 10.19, he's given us access to God by his blood. Even in this verse, Hebrews 10.29 says that it's his blood that sanctifies His blood is our only means to cleansing, purification, sanctification. And the apostate has taken all the sacrifice of Jesus, symbolized by his blood, and they've rejected it and called it an unclean thing. They've profaned the one thing that's holy. They toss it aside 
as if it were filthy, signaling their own virtue, their own holiness, by profaning the blood of Christ as the wicked evil in the world. Any clues why God might not like that sort of thing? They've also outraged the spirit of grace. It's interesting, so many in our day are outraged that we would talk about the Bible that we would talk about Jesus, that we would tell them that there's a day coming when God will judge the world, that, that, that we would dare to call them sinners and call them to repentance, right? That, that's the outrage of the world, that we would talk about anybody's need to repent. They're outraged when we suggest that they should surrender, surrender their lives to Jesus or they will face a terrible wrath of God at the judgment. They're outraged, but who actually has the right to be outraged? According to the Bible, it's God who has the right to be outraged. Psalm 7:11 says that God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day or who hates sin and sinners every day. His indignation is constant every day. Why? Because he's righteous and we're not. He's angry and indignant towards sinners and their sin every day. But I tell you unequivocally, he is never more outraged than at the apostate who has trampled his son underfoot and profaned the blood of the covenant. Notice in this third statement, the particular name of God used in this third phrase, the one who is outraged is the spirit of grace. That's the Holy Spirit, right? What's the work of the Holy Spirit? To enlighten our minds, to warm our hearts to the gospel, to teach us the gospel, which is about what? Grace. It's about grace. It's about the unmerited favor of God given to the sinner. It's about the free gift of eternal life to all those who would turn and trust in Jesus, right? Do you see here again something of the connection with that unforgivable sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit and his work? But here it's the particular work of grace that makes it more, more heinous. The apostate insults the work of grace. The free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus that the Holy Spirit's offering I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to, to hate God, but it's a different thing in many ways to hate the grace of God. To hate the grace of God is outrageous, according to God. And that's exactly what we learn here is God's view of the apostate who rejects him in light of so great a salvation as is now offered in Christ Jesus. Imagine this for a second. You have a son... You send him down the street with a key in his hand, a key to a $100 million mansion. And his job is to go give it to somebody. And as he approaches the one he's chosen, he, he reaches out his hand to hand the person the key. And they slap it away, scream profanity at him, throw him to the ground and trample him till he's dead. If that's your son, would you maybe be outraged? It's a weak analogy, isn't it? Compared to what God has done. It's no wonder he's outraged. It's no wonder that, 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 he's, that he, he, he plans a much worse punishment for those who have done such a thing. God's not uncertain about his response in the least. See verse 30 and 31. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The writer of Hebrews here quotes from two consecutive verses in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. So he's quoting from pieces of two different verses, consecutive verses. Deuteronomy 32.35 says, vengeance is mine and recompense, a repayment. For the time when their foot shall slip and for the day of their calamity is hand is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. And the next verse, verse 36 says, For the Lord will vindicate or judge his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees the power, uh, that their power is gone and there's none remaining, bond or free. Now, like I said, the writer only quotes a portion of each verse, but the, the, the meaning is clear, isn't it? From verse 34, Deuteronomy 32, 35, I mean, vengeance is mine and I will recompense, I will repay. God has never and will never take sin so lightly as we do. He's told us that he'll judge us. What's the penalty for that sin? 
What is it? What's the penalty? Death. Eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Even in the time of Moses, he judged his own people, as he says in, verse, uh, in, in that second statement from Deuteronomy 32:36. He judges his own people. The ones who know him best are the ones that he has always judged most severely. Because when they sinned, they should have known better. There is no Old Testament people judged more severely by God than the people of Israel. We've talked about this in various contexts before. There are degrees of punishment that are based on degrees of knowledge of and experience with the Lord. Perhaps the worst punishment of a man is reserved for Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve and became a traitor against Jesus. With him and near to him will be others who have known Jesus and then rejected him. It'll be worse on the day of judgment, Jesus said, for Capernaum where he taught in their streets than for Sodom, where he didn't. The worst punishment is in that for the apostate. The apostate section of the lake of fire is the deepest, hottest part. It's where the worst punishment will be meted out because the Lord will repay them with the worst punishment for these three reasons. They have trampled underfoot the Son of God after once professing their love for him. They have profaned the blood of the covenant after previously trusting themselves to that blood as their only means of salvation. And and they have turned their back on the grace shown to them by the Spirit. It is always a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God because he's the sovereign creator. He's he's the ruler of all things, right? God is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, holy, holy, holy that ought to cause anybody who knows they're a sinner to tremble with fear. We've got to be shaking in our boots over this idea. Yet, for those who love Jesus and follow him, there is nowhere so safe and so peaceful as the hands of the living God. For those who know him, those who are his, there is no better place than in the palm of God's hand. We should never lose our reverence and offer him because God is still that God, but he has extinguished his vengeance against us by taking it out on his son on the cross. Right? That's how we're saved. We're saved from ever repaying him with his wrath. But everybody else, when they fall into the hands of the living God, is will be on judgment day to stand trial. The unmitigated, undiluted wrath of God will fall most severely on those adversaries who betrayed Jesus like Judas did by falling away after knowing him. Now, if you're afraid that's you, let it sink in a minute, but if you're afraid that's you, I have a little hope for you today. If you think this is you, I have a little hope. It doesn't have to be you. You still have time to repent. The Lord is still kind and patient. Even with those who have turned their back on the Lord, He will be kind and patient as long as he gives you another day. But don't waste today, right? The writer of Hebrews has told us that again and again. Today is the day of salvation. You must turn to him and repent today. Otherwise, you'll fall away in the hardness of your heart. And the end for you will be falling into the hands of the living God who will punish you with the most severe punishment. But that doesn't have to be you. But you must repent. You have to stop thinking that the Lord has to fit into your box, into your program, into your worldview, into your, into your whatever thing. The Lord is not yours to put in a box. You have to renounce yourself and turn to Jesus to trust him as your Savior, to follow him as your Lord. Cry out to him for mercy and don't stop until you get it. That's the hope. Now, brothers and sisters... Be very careful not to neglect so great a salvation. I mean, don't allow yourself to drift away from the Lord. Do what it says. Draw near to God in faith. Hold fast the confession of your hope. Consider how to love each other and all the more as the day approaches. Don't ever turn away from the living God, for you will fall into his hands and vengeance is his, he says, and he will repay. And the worst repayment will be the betrayer, the adversary the one who fell away after knowing the Lord. 
Let me encourage you with just one verse. We'll discuss it next week. Next week. For the end here, Hebrews 10.36. A couple verses down. It says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. It's possible to receive what is promised. But you cannot give up. You must endure to the end. We must not fade back. We must press forward and endure to the end. Because he who promised is indeed faithful to those who don't fall away from the faith. Amen. Lord, I pray that you would help us. Help us. We need you. We need your strength. We need not just more knowledge about you, but more of your strength, more of your power. We need you in our lives, Lord, to, to, to draw us closer to you so that we could come more fully assured of our faith, Lord. Give us stronger conviction and stronger confession that we might live for you. Lord, increase the love that we have for one another and for you so that we, we won't drift, so we won't neglect salvation, so we won't allow our hearts to be hardened and in and, and that way to fall away. Lord, this is, a, this is a terrifying passage for any who would ever fall away. Not only won't they be able to come back, their sins have no possibility of being forgiven because they have trampled your son underfoot. Lord Jesus, I almost want to apologize for them for having done such a thing, for having profaned what is the most holy, for having cursed you who deserves nothing but praise. Lord, I pray that as we come that you would fill us with the spirit of grace. Lord, help us not to outrage you with any apostasy. Lord, I pray that you would be a help in these things. Just ask you for the power without which we will most assuredly fall away. We beg you and plead you, Lord, with you, Lord, to to give us the mercy and to keep us in the faith. Help us to endure and to finish all the way to the end. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.